Please do have your Bibles open at that passage, Luke chapter 20, uh, sorry, chapter 14 and verse 25 and following. I'm sure every one of us wishes that this room was filled with people. Indeed, they were crowding the doors, longing to be in. Well, the great teacher and the great evangelist, our Lord Jesus Christ, he has that situation right here, doesn't he? Look at the first verse, verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him, and we assume they're in their thousands. But there's no word of encouragement, is there? There's only exhortation and warning. What he does, he turns to these great crowds and he tells them what it really means to be his follower, his disciple. Because he knows them. They have witnessed his amazing miracles. They have heard his authoritative teaching, not like the scribes and the Pharisees who quoted others. He said, I say to you. And that was the end. He's held people spellbound. And many dared to hope, is this the one who's going to deliver us, not from sin, but from the Roman oppressors? He the one who's going to bring in this promised messianic reign of prosperity and peace. You know, that's what they cried when he came into Jerusalem, didn't they? Hosanna to the son of David. At this particular point, they had no idea whatsoever what lay ahead for the Lord Jesus. Well, what lay ahead for him? A triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he'd become king on the throne? You know that's not so. It's the cross that lay ahead for him. And they had no idea that if they were his followers, that's the very path in which they would have to walk. He had said it, but just like so often happens, it goes in one ear and out of the other. All they could think of was their present situation and that here was one who had all power to deliver them from that situation. We've had much about the Olympics. Just imagine somebody now thinking of, when is it? Um, 2024, isn't it? They're fantasizing in their minds, I'm going to win a gold medal in 2024. That's their great dream. And it's just a fantasy. They think of how their name will be emblazoned all over the media and the financial gain that they hope to get from it through various means when they become public. 
How foolish if they don't think, what lifestyle am I going to have to lead over the next three years if I've got any hope whatsoever of being the best in the world? Well, you know what it is. We've been hearing about it, haven't we, in the past weeks. Single-minded devotedness, week after week, year after year. Nobody got a gold medal without that. So let's think of that now in terms of following Jesus and being his disciple. And we're going to consider it around three words that Jesus speaks, which are not very welcome words. In one sense, it's not a very welcome message, but it is the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says these three things, and for each one he says, unless they are true of you and me, we cannot be his disciple. It's not we'll be a lesser disciple, or we're on the way to being a disciple. If these are not true, then we can't be his disciple. That's what he says. And first of all, it's centered around the word hate. Then it's centered around the word cross. And then it's centered around the word renounce. So let's look at those and then draw a conclusion. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If only he said, hate your enemy, then that's something we could do, isn't it? But no. He here singles out the closest family members who we dearly love. And he says, you hate them. Why is that so necessary? Why must that be true of you in order to be his real disciple? Well, if you uh, consider the teaching of the Lord Jesus, say back in chapter 12 of Luke and verse 51, Jesus says to them, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Do you think that by becoming my disciple, everything will be just lovely? He says, no. I tell you, but rather division. Where's the division going to be, my friends? What did Jesus say? Verse 52, for from now on in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Or consider, very similarly, Matthew chapter 10. Again, he says in verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now, of course, he doesn't mean 
that he isn't the Prince of Peace. He means that my coming will bring division. Ultimately, of course, he brings peace. But when some receive him and others don't, there'll be division. So he goes on. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Listen to this. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That is what he says will happen. And when it happens, we shouldn't be at all surprised. It happened to him, didn't it? Did his mother and brothers understand him? Did he not have to tell them two or three times, you don't understand, my time has not yet come. You want me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. His brothers didn't believe in him, did they? In fact, uh, it's uh, recorded that when he had no time to eat because of the crowds pressing, they said, he's beside himself, he's mad. That's what Jesus himself had to face. And yet there was no sin in him. So Jesus is saying that if you're going to be his disciple, you must expect opposition from your family, those who are closest to you, who love you. Now many try to soften the language. And they say, this is not real hatred, but it's loving less. And they will quite rightly appeal to Matthew 10 and verse 37. So we just keep reading there. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is what it means. It doesn't mean literally that we are to hate. But I think there's great danger in simply saying it means to love less. Yes, we are commanded to honour our parents. But when a parent or a family member or a sibling asks you to do something, to say something, a lie, a shady deal, to not obey the Lord, and you say, I'm very sorry, I love you, but I can't do what you are asking me to do expect opposition. They may even say to you, you hate me. Because that's what it appears like to them. I could give you quite a few examples. In fact, I'm going to from my own experience. Here's a child who becomes a Christian and they're disowned by their family. There's no inheritance for you. I think of one whose father was a millionaire. There's nothing for you, my son. I don't count you as my son anymore. I know of one whose father had a mock funeral. Because to me, you become a Christian, 
You've given up the family heritage. To me, you're dead. That was, that's reality in so many cases. What about the one who got onto the phone to his father? And his father said to him, son, don't you fear anybody else, but if I find you, I'll kill you. That's what's going on in the world, my friends, uh, even today. I mean, that's from my own experience as I've dealt with people in, uh, in Kenya. You believe God is calling you to be a preacher, not a professional, a life of poverty as it's considered. Or your parents, this is not our society here, but it is in large parts of the world, your parents have arranged marriage to a non-Christian or for you to be a second wife or to marry as a teenager a man who's over 70. Those are the situations where what Jesus is saying is absolutely essential. So what he's saying is this, that if you're really my disciple, have wholehearted devotion to me. Every other loyalty, and there are other loyalties, in our family, in the country of which we're citizens, but every other loyalty is at best secondary. Do you see, this really is a divine claim now of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? We are to have no other gods except Jehovah. We're not to have anybody else before the Lord Jesus. He's number one. But there's probably an even harder battle than even that because Jesus doesn't simply say, hate those nearest and dearest to you. He says, hate that one which is the most dear to you. You know who that is, don't you? It's you. Did you notice that? And even uh, your own uh, life, he says there in uh, verse 26. That, I think, is the hardest battle of all. I love myself. But when love for myself and love for Jesus are in conflict, I must deny myself. I must act as if I hate myself by not giving in to the desires of my heart. Desires for self-justification or for revenge or for peace at any price, or for comfort in the battle. That's why Jesus says, if you want to gain life, you must lose it for my sake and the Gospels. Well, Jesus is this to us, isn't he? We, we don't now say, oh, this is such an impossible burden. We say, but Lord, you are my saviour. You died for me. Yeah. You're, you're my Lord. And I want to serve you. I'd rather offend others than offend you. My friends, we've got to apply that then across our lives. The temptations are always there. Sunday is so often intruded upon. 
by the world, by others, by relatives. It's not easy to say no. The interests that other people have that we can't share in. The conversation that's had by mem family members. We can't participate in it. And so it goes on like that. So there's number one. Jesus says, you must hate your own father and mother. Secondly, this is in verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, if only he had said, you've got to bear the responsibility of taking the gospel to the whole world. Okay, that one I can do. But to bear a cross? Do you not understand what the cross is? It's been sanitized, hasn't it? There is nothing more awful, indescribable, than crucifixion. It was said even in those days that you died a thousand deaths. It was a most ignominious instrument of torture, deliberately designed for long and excruciating pain until maybe a day, two, three later, you died. And Jesus says, bear your own cross. Now, Jesus literally did that, didn't he? It's the same word later on in the gospel. He bore his cross as he was forced to begin to carry it to the place of crucifixion. That's what Jesus says when he announces to the disciples after the transfiguration, yes, I am the Messiah, as Peter, you've said, but I'm a Messiah who's going to be crucified. And then he immediately says, if you follow me, you've got to take up your own cross, just as I will do at literally. Uh, back in chapter 9 of Luke, it's even stronger, if that's believable. Verse 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not just a one-time special event or when you become a Christian. This is the constant experience of uh, discipleship. Now, why is it necessary? Why can't you avoid bearing the cross? Because you can't. And I can't. This is the reason. Do you not understand that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're entering a spiritual battle? And it's no simple battle. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 6. It's a devilish battle against an implacable enemy, a powerful, a wily enemy. It's impossible to be engaged in that fight and to be unscathed. 
So what's Jesus saying? You're not talking here about sickness, which is what many people think. That's not a cross. That's something common to the whole world, isn't it? This is where you deliberately choose a course of action in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, being pretty sure that you're going to get opposition. Let's go back to our dear brothers and sisters today in Afghanistan. I read the maybe 2,000 of them. Do you not think that when they professed discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, did they not know what lay ahead for them? When some of them went to the government, I read, and said, we don't want Muslim to be on our identity cards. We want Christian. And they did it for the sake of their uh, children and grandchildren who were to follow. Did they not know the likely consequences? Of course they did. But that's the path they chose in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. In our history, there was, uh, uh, just to give one out of countless examples, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Thomas Cranmer, who in a moment of weakness uh, denied what he believed. And then he was told, okay, you're going to get up in the cathedral and this is what you're going to read, your confession uh, to all the crowd. And instead of that, he boldly testified of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately he was led out to the stake to be burned alive. He knew what was going to happen. And he held that hand, I guess it was his right hand. He held his hand out to be burned first because it was a hand that caused him to deny Christ in that moment. He chose there to bear his cross. He could have escaped, perhaps. Well, it may not be death that awaits us, but persecution of one kind or another. In one sense, it's not a very welcome message, is it? But this is why Jesus said it, simply because the crowds were not thinking. Let us not be like that, brothers and sisters. But surely we've heard so much, even of late. Have we not been going through the Beatitudes? Did we not sing verse 8 of that hymn, which is basically Matthew 5, verses 10, 11 and 12? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You have it. The same in Luke's Gospel is called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6 and verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. And that's what Jesus says. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. I mean, look at this. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold... Your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. There's our problem. We don't think or believe 
about the great reward in heaven. If that possessed us, we'd be able to do what we read here. Or chapter 9 of Luke and verse 23. Similar words. He said to all, we've read it already, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And we could go on. <clears throat> May I just read to you from John's Gospel, John 15. Uh, what Jesus said to the disciples as he was leaving them in the upper room, John 15 and verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, he's not asking us to have experiences that he didn't have himself. We're following him, aren't we? Verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, you see, we've entered into that spiritual battle. We've, we've crossed over the lines, haven't we? to what the world regards as enemy territory. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You're a professed disciple, aren't you? Are you ready for that? For Jesus says, now then, Thirdly, this is in Luke 14, and now verse 33. He says, so therefore, he's coming to his conclusion. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Can you get a stronger contrast to the so-called prosperity? Well, it's not gospel, is it? Instead of receiving everything uh, that this world has to offer, you renounce it. That's the path of discipleship. Isn't that what Jesus said? He didn't say renounce your sins because that we can do. But he said renounce all that he has. And Jesus said about himself, because we're not following one who lived in luxury, are we? What did he say? Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have their nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, let's ask this question again, brothers and sisters. Why is this a necessary demand? Why can't you be his disciple unless you do this? Well, it's because, as he says in the parable of the sower, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches are such a great danger if you hold on to them. If you think they are your rights, that you can't live without them, then they will destroy you. This is why the rich young ruler 
was literally commanded to go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. Why? Because his heart was bound up with his riches. And for some people, when they become disciples of Christ, there are very specific things they have to give up because they're their idols. But Jesus didn't say that to Zacchaeus, did he? What does this mean, to uh, renounce all that you have? It means that you no longer take anything about your life as being under your control. Your life and everything about your life is now under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. You take it as a stewardship from him to do with your life and all that you have and all your abilities as Christ wants you to do. In the words of 1 Corinthians, you've been bought with a price. You're no longer your own. Your life, your possessions, your house, your family, your abilities, your job, your everything. Not just Sunday, every day, Monday through Monday. Not just devotions, when you pray and read the Bible, but in home, school, and work. Nothing is yours. It's all the Lord's. He's entrusted it to you for his service and glory. I've tried to simply explain to you what Jesus is saying. I've tried to bring you other scriptures to show that indeed that is what he's saying. But he's got something more to say than that, hasn't he? Because perhaps some of you are saying, I can imagine, well, preacher, if that's what's required to be a true disciple, count me out. That standard's too high for me. It's to you that Jesus is particularly speaking this evening. He doesn't want you to think that you're his follower when you aren't. So I want to draw now a conclusion and I want to reason with each one of you here this evening. I've got two things to bring to you. First of all, I want to tell you, my friend, you must count the cost of following Jesus. You must take these statements that Jesus makes very seriously. Jesus, in verses 28 and following, he gives the example of a man embarking on a building project. And if you do that in your home, an extension or whatever it is you do in your home, surely you try to see if you've got enough resources presently or that you have a, a good degree of certainty that those resources will be there when you need them. And you look into the future. You try to factor in delays and inflation because you don't want to look foolish. And we only have to look around a bit, don't we? And we see foolish people. I don't know whether it's the, the people building uh, or those who have invited them to build, but 
stalled projects. So here you are now, spiritually. You know there's a God, that's why you're here. And you know that you're going to have to answer on the day of judgment for your life. You know that you've sinned. You know you haven't done everything that God says you have to do. And you know that salvation, therefore, is only found in Jesus Christ and him crucified. But now you're learning it's not just a quick fix. Okay, let me say my prayer. Uh, please forgive my sins. Uh, and then you go on your way and just live the same kind of life. That's not what it's like. There's a cost to be counted. As you pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, you know there's going to be family problems. You're going to have to deny yourself and your whole life now will be devoted to the one who died for you. And I simply reason with you, are you ready to bear that cost? Many have begun, but they didn't last long. Because as Jesus says elsewhere, when temptations came, when trials came, they gave up. The Hebrew Christians were being tempted in that very way. I want to say to you, the cost is great, but it's worth it. As one hymn says, even if seven deaths lay between me and glory, I'd go for glory. Is it worth training for three years to get Olympic gold? Ask them. Oh, it's worth it. Is it worth studying hard for a year, pushing other interests aside that you do well in your exams? It's worth it, isn't it? But those are only worldly things for a moment. Is it worth even dying seven times, if it were possible, in order to get glory? It's worth it. But you have to count the cost. But Jesus, I think, has got another perspective. Perhaps some of you are saying, still, that cost is too great for me. I love my family too much and you've got all the reasons why it's so difficult for you and I'll go, I'll go with it. But then secondly, I need to ask you, can you count the cost of not following Jesus? Because there's a cost to be counted there, which is a far greater cost. So Jesus here has his second scenario in verse 31 and 32. You have an enemy that you're going to fight in battle, whether you're going to him or he's coming to you. And before you engage you look at the strength of the opposing army. And if you've got 10,000 and he's got 20, you say, wait a minute, I think this may be foolish. And so you decide to sue for peace instead of the uh, 
the, the defeat. You, you rather surrender and bear that shame than be decimated. My friends, if you say the cost of following Christ is too great, I will not do it. Then I tell you again, there's a day of judgment that you have to reckon with. And let me ask you, what excuse will you have on the day of judgment? What will you tell God when you haven't followed Christ, the very son of his love whom he gave? How will you excuse yourself and, and expect God to say, it's okay then? If you say, well, I tried my best. Or you say, well, I'm not as bad as others, which in a sense is true. Or you say, I didn't have enough knowledge. If I'd known more. Now just imagine going to the magistrate's court and you're sitting listening to somebody uh, pleading for themselves and they say, uh, your honour, uh, it's true that I did what I'm accused of, but you know, I, I was trying my best not to. Will that wash? Well, you know, there are others who've done far worse crimes than me. Will that wash? Well, you know, I, I didn't really know the full extent of the law. I, I didn't have all the knowledge. If I'd known this was such a serious crime, I wouldn't have done it. Will that wash? Well, of course, your best wasn't good enough. You broke the law. The wickedness of others can never excuse your wickedness. And it's your responsibility to seek out knowledge. My friend, here it is. It's there aplenty wherever you go in this world. So I ask you, will you be able to overturn the judgment of God? Because he's declared it here in the scriptures. Well, the terms of discipleship are tough. But they're the better option. Because the other one is eternal punishment. Let me encourage you now. You know, when you make for peace with God, with the example of the two armies going to fight, when you sue for peace with God, you'll find God to be so gracious. As if he was never your enemy in the first place. What will he do? He'll forgive you all your sins. He'll wash you as white as snow. He will credit to your account the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ so that you can stand before him, the thrice holy God, with boldness. He will send his Holy Spirit to indwell you, to strengthen you, to teach you, to guide you, to keep you. God will become your father. He won't be your judge. You can come to him now and say, Father. He'll preserve you. He'll provide all that you need for life and godliness. And then he'll bring you to glory. So everything that you need for time and eternity 
he will do. He will help you then in this path of discipleship. So it won't seem hard. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So that you won't go around as a Christian and shame on us if we do. As if God is such a hard taskmaster. Isn't it a joy, my brethren, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? To put him first? To suffer for him? And to say, Lord, all I am and all I have is yours for your service. That's the greatest privilege and joy on earth. I want to finish with a very particular application to us as we claim to be disciples. I think one of the messages of this passage is that as professed disciples, we must make sure we're willing to be outside our comfort zone. The world loves its comfort zones. The three words I've brought to you this evening are hardly comfortable, are they? Hate, cross, renounce. Brothers and sisters, we have an unfinished commission. We're going to sing about it, last hymn. The Lord Jesus Christ left this world with a commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And one of the reasons why this doesn't get done is because these terms of discipleship are not fulfilled as they ought to be. We love missionary stories, but we don't want to be without the food of our choice. We don't want to be where the weather is too hot. You keep on talking about how hot it is here. And, uh, well, you do have an idea of what heat is, but uh, yeah, you, you may have to go to a place where it's really hot and almost unbearable. You may pick up diseases, like malaria, you, you may. You may be in danger. You may die, for Christ's sake. That's the way the Great Commission has been fulfilled over the centuries, isn't it? We glory in the book, The Gates of Splendor, don't we? <laughs> we know how it ended, but when the five were killed, wow. But we thank God for that. My friends, Jesus left the glories of heaven, the comforts of heaven for you, if you're his disciple. He didn't just come to this world, he went to the cursed cross for you. He endured the, the agonies of spiritual separation from his father for you. He did everything. There's nothing more that he could have done. He went to the depths for you.
And so these terms of discipleship are the most reasonable, aren't they? So why are we as a church not more eager for the gospel to go to the unreached? Let's begin with prayer. We've got lots of opportunities of prayer this week. Let's pray for the unreached peoples of this world. Let's begin to think how we can support those who are somehow ministering to the unreached. We have no hope without Christ. Let's pray for this church to send somebody and more. Let's consider how we can use our holidays, some of us. Get out of our comfort zone. We're the Lord's. Let's serve him with every aspect of our lives. We love him because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us to hear your word this evening, not to be like Eve, who sat in judgment upon it and thought she was wiser than you. Please send your spirit to illuminate our minds. Please help everyone, myself as well, to know how what we have read and heard applies to me personally. Please bless us, Lord. Have mercy upon us. Forgive our sins, we pray. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.